Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. My Papa's Pinky Ring. It was the pride of 144 Oakleaf Circle, not the porcelain angel set sitting in the living room window for all to see, the price tag still dangling from each figurine, or the electric recliner bought up front and full from the sweepstakes winnings. Not the ceramic Christmas tree with specks of gold in the paint, given to my meemaw by the preacher's wife and placed on permanent display above the furnace. Not even his bronze-plated pocket watch from the war, but my papal's pinky ring. For as far back as I can remember, I've known vague images of crystals twinkling about, tantalizing and enchanting my infant senses. The planetary baby mobile never stood a chance. Nothing could match the spell of shiny sparkles abound, however musical. Looking up at him with the warm, almost antique light spilling out from dust-weathered brass and stogie-filled ashtrays, I followed it wherever it went, flickering from the presumed wing of an imaginary plane that delivered me creamed corn, despite being waved off by the tower. Accenting a loose handful of cashews jiggled in front of my face, shuffling about there in the driveway. Resting atop his stomach during a nap on the screened-in porch, gently rising up and down, and at its peak, catching a blown-out beam of full-setting brilliance. A fixation that endured throughout my formative years and lingered over adolescence, albeit more discreetly. The stone, a 2.71 carat emerald cut diamond, he pulled from Sutherland Cole's number five mine in the Sequoia Valley when he was 17. He smuggled the uncut rock deep inside his rectum to evade the company's enforcers during their day-to-day searches. Friendlies, they were dubbed by the miners, notorious for their familiar diligence. Back at his tent, he had the precious gem property of Sutherland Coal, in a secret compartment inside a kerosene lantern, where it would remain safe until he could scrape together enough scrib to skip town. The company tender was weak by design, and their smokes levied at a premium, Cherokee Gold's his preferred brand. They were hand-rolled in the back of the store and stacked tall behind a wall of rusty chicken wire. A handgun was placed nearby in plain view to deter those more brazen, or anyone with their credit line already capped for the month. 
Staving off the itch and suffering from sober malaise, he rationed and saved, traded for supplies, and stayed away from cards. Extraneous measures struck down in the dead of night after a guard caught the geodesic rails of light playing across the outside of his tent one evening when in the long, empty, solitary stillness, he, in his words, succumbed to temptation. He fled camp under cover of darkness with nothing but the long underwear on his back and a fistful of ice, which urged him along over every jagged stone and prickly thorn he scampered across. A party of company men, clad in plaid and rallied round a bundle of shotguns and a pack of hungry hounds, chased him thick and fast through the remote wilderness. Sunup came quickly, then the stifling stickiness of midday summer, more smoldering than searing and seasoned with skeeters. He waded miles upriver against the wind and came upon a landing where he swiped a nightgown from a clothesline and hopped afraid of produce heading for the Carolina coast. Reclined on a heap of what he insisted and always interjected were Harper County onions, he watched over the Tennessee River as it rolled alongside, shimmering in the light of a full moon. The glowworms of twilight and the haze of budding dawn provided him with welcome companions. I was the richest man on God's green earth in that moment, he would say with fresh eyes and a youthful air. And then I remembered that big old sparkler in my pocket. One of his narrative clenchers, which customarily went off with a raspy cackle. An eccentric hallmark I remember well, undeterred by social setting or convention. Most notably at Meemaw's funeral, when he recalled a favorite joke of hers that he repeated in broken German before admitting he never understood the thing. But the way she told it, he shared from the pulpit with a glimmer in his eye, always made me laugh. She understood me, the real me, and that, there ain't no misconstruing. After arriving in Dalesboro, South Carolina, he had the gemstone cut by a local jeweler, a one-eyed smith named B.B. Parsons, who worked out of a shed attached to the back of a cat house, the Carolina Pearl. A part of the tale that typically ran cold or depleted of details when told in mixed company, especially if Meemaw entered the room. Don't get molasses gums on my account, she'd say. Tell him about Madame Dutant in the third floor. A joshing from her that always prompted a ready tin of black bear stashed in the crack of his chair and a big convenient wad of chew that could choke a goat. Button-lipped and with a dumb expression was his best defense which only Meemaw could bring on. That's how you knew it was something good, when the prattler went silent, or turned red. The comings and goings of the Pearl's third floor remain a mystery to me. Sometimes I think, perhaps even to my papaw. The ring's band was nothing flashy. Nothing flashy would be a step up. It was crafted from a piece of copper tubing from an old liquor still B.B. Parsons built and occasionally partook in to steady his hand. Tremors of the beast, he called them, which he rectified with a toot at the top of the hour, every hour, occasionally. 
Likewise, Madame Newton's girls sought their own home-brewed nerve from Parsons' elixir, a top-up of their hip flask, stolen between clients or with each revolution of the second hand, poised and plucked from beneath the garter like a gunslinger's holster. My papaw said the pipe gauge was snug, too snug for a digit of use, but a perfect fit for a digit of prominence and persuasion, his soot-encrusted pinky. The training camp was just outside Dalesboro, down the coast a ways out in a marshy sprawl. The way he told it, the bus took you straight to the base and dumped you out right in front of the recruiter's office. Into the line for a lot of boys. So there were plenty of boots to go around. Not to mention the wetlands were full of AWOLs, bands of them if you believe the stories. Whole shanty towns of deserters who could read the writing on the wall armed and living off the land, boar and python, sheltered from the horrors overseas, if only submitting to their own brand of trench foot. In one recount, during a family get-together at Christmas, brought on by our festive spread and more possibly the presence of my high school girlfriend at the time, he regaled us with the night he snuck out beyond the boot camp's fences and stumbled upon a community of defectors deep in the swamps. Friendliest bunch of folks you'd ever have the privilege of meeting, he said, jabbing my shoulder, as if I didn't believe the extent of their kindliness. We sang and we drank, we feasted through the night, and we were as merry as merry can be, I tell you. I remember the mental image of colorful lamps strung through the trees and my papal drunkenly playing an accordion in front of a lavishly decorated banquet with a giant snake cooked and coiled on a platter in the center of the table, one of the men wearing his ring, dancing and showing it off to the others. His world was infectious like that. He was stationed in the Swiss Alps. Back into the mountains I went, he typically transitioned, right in the thick of the whole damn Reich. Spies to the left of me, Sympathizers to the right. Later on, when I got older, I'd hum the rest of it in my head. In Bern, he delighted the gastropubs with his harrowing account of the legendary Sequoia diamond-rich coal seam and the thrilling narration of his escape. It took the better part of two weeks for the stench of onions to wear off, I could hear him say. Harper County, too allowing the ring's seductive luminosity to dance against the glinting tankards of lager and hanging wine glasses, I imagined the other soldiers parading up and down the bar with their crude, handcrafted sweetheart jewelry, tragically trying to catch the eye of lonely soaks and rummy couples on the move as they skedaddled off, desperately late to catch Papal's second performance. I can see in my mind a sailor, landlocked, separated from the others, sitting at an extreme end of the bar, frantically attempting to reassemble a charm bracelet he made for his mother, featuring a coat of arms and mismatched lettering suspended from shattered clasp that spell out, Mama. Suddenly a clamorous spout of laughter from my papal's gathered audience startles the seaman, causing the rudimentary trinket to leap from his hands and fly into a pot of fondue.
In the snow-capped hills, he kept watch over the telecommunications perimeter together with a small squad, hunkered down on the summit peak, chewing the frozen stiffness from his leather boots. Each boy, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, standing shoulder to shoulder in their ice-covered bunker at attention, roll call. Next to Papal, there was Tommy, then Frenchy, and Simmons, a member of the Signal Corps. He fashioned stylish flight jackets for the homing pigeons from the pockets of his trousers, and helmets out of emptied walnut shells my Papal smuggled inside his knapsack. Pignut hickories he picked from 50 feet up outside the training camp. Together, bearing the blanketing elements, the men in their collective body heat protected one another from certain doom or overall discomfort, whichever they found worse. It was hope and a reason to keep on, if nothing else. The warmth was ample, too much for some. Pitiful Tommy, pictured second from the left in Papal's virtual rank, lost his leg to frostbite in the middle of the night when that body-to-body contact proved too toasty, causing him to break away from the unit's official cuddle-file formation. Ailing for days on his last limb, just a spot of gangrene, he assured them, he presented my papa with his prized Ravello Trentini pocket watch. Keep it close, the Brit said, no longer shivering. Tardiness is a disreputable quality. Stranded on the side of the mountain and their system seized up from the cold, blinded by harsh, pounding winds, they preserved Tommy's remains in a block of ice and rode it down the mountain bareback. Careening through the rocky snow drifts at speed, when my papa looked between his legs at Tommy's frozen corpse, he swore hand to God it was smiling. After the fall of Berlin, on a train bound for London, he met my Mimo in the dining car of the Royal Alpine Express, an attendant, stirring his diamond-studded pinky in a martini glass. Say, Cupy, you go with bullish men? He asked, tasting his finger to a charming recoil. Quite exclusively, he said she said, with a giggle and a twinkle in her eye, before the entire car of servicemen stood up in unison around her. Waterloo's only an hour away, he reminded the men. Some of you fellas are gonna have to wait. Sitting there in the reception of Sawyer Bluff Medical Center, following Papal's first fall, alone in the house after Meemaw passed, I brought up the 415 to Waterloo, sparked by a droning and oddly set war program playing on the television in the waiting room. My aunt and uncle informed me that Meemaw was born in Pensacola and never once left the country, let alone ever rode on a train. The variabilities of accounts never registered with me all that much. Both were truths I experienced through stories, which in my mind needed no cross-examination. They were the ones they told, and the ones he told. The former was how they saw him, and the latter how I saw him, how he saw himself. Who was I to question? Who were they to question? What did it matter? 
Each respective take seemed to me as a personal allowance for and acceptance of proposed details. Some more colorful than others, some richer in tone, deeper in shade, some dulled by age, others more vivid, showier, chintzier, and some spotlighted front and center by means of ever-increasing intensity. And my papal's pinky ring provided the source for it all. When I was seven, we took him and Meemaw to dinner for his birthday at the nicest restaurant in town, the Station House. Though he persisted the whole ride over that the ring would take us. The Station House was a fine dining experience situated on the site of an old downtown rail yard, converted into an open promenade with benches and vintage train cars, tall planters of boxwoods and patron bricks lining the idle tracks. Mitzi's Barbecue. East Town Flooring, the Campbell family and Fane, their son from the city. Inside, a complimentary photographer was on hand to commemorate any occasion. They usually worked the lobby and were rather pushy about a tip, a gesture I didn't realize until sometime later when several classmates and I celebrated our graduation and I found myself standing across from the most uncompromising of eye contact which inevitably led to an awkward ping-pong rally of excessive, unending gratitude peppered with small talk, ceasing only to the call of my friends when it was time to be seated. Each picture was placed in a cardboard frame with a mountainous, railroad-themed border, then brought straight to your table, and best of all, guaranteed delivery before the dessert trolley came around. As guests of my papal's ring, we were a party of five, six if you count the ring. And when our table wasn't ready, he flaunted it in front of the hostess with some not-so-subtle pre-dinner toothpick play, a tiny swordsman in bejeweled armor. A skillful display that, for years, I thought was a sort of magic trick. Then, even later, I realized in a way it was. Waving a teeny wand like a sorcerer casting incantations focused on getting a steak and a butter-whipped baked potato before the slightest sign of sundown. The station house was known for its large wooden cheese cart, parked in the lounge and sporting a red and white striped canopy, surrounded by potted plants and fitted with ornamental samplings, big wheels of cheddar and ivy-tangled bottles of Chianti. Stretching for his sliver with his thumb and index finger firmly holding the little cheese knife, his pinky decked in gleaming regalia and at full salute, he dazzled the diamond in the amber glow of a Jean Petit Canembert, making sure the others at the cart got a face full of it. Here, let me get you a hunk, I'm closer. I remember him saying to a man in a bright red blazer with gold buttons, blinding the unsuspecting sort while lopping him off a whole corner of hard cheese. Since I'm here, try this Japino one, he insisted before directing his rock's reflection straight into the man's eyes, temporarily stunning him. This blue cheese is tasty too, Papaw continued, striking the disoriented man with another radiant blow. And this orange one, he extended his assault, delivering the man a one-two swipe, the first from an aged Asiago, the second off a blazingly bold Gouda. 
Mmm, cheese straws. He munched with carrot-colored flakes stuck to his lips. You'll need some crackers. What's your poison? Water? Vegetable? Multigrain? He grilled, thrusting his pinky with a swiftness that caused the man to stagger in a daze and stable himself against the cart. Whoa, steady those knees now. That moldy one will turn you cripple, he added, zipping off with his haul and heading toward the bar, his voice fading off. Look at all these fancy bottles. Poor bastards. At our table, next to the fireplace, he motioned to the server from four tables over, then ran his pinky down the menu inquiring about each dish. Uh-huh, and this one, subtly gliding his ring alongside the grabby descriptions. A pork reduction. Now what's that? He asked, taking a sip of water, his pinky outstretched with regal flair. Liquid leftover. You mean like meat sweat? It, now, is it possible to get extra uh, liquid leftover? Say, for instance, if, oh, I don't know, that gentleman over there didn't want his, you could say siphon it over to mine, he proposed, pointing across the dining room with an exaggerated wind-up. Hey, fella, you don't want your meat sweat, do you? Dad, please, my mother gently pleaded, trying to dissuade him. Excuse me, liquid leftover, he shouted to the confused man, correcting himself. I remember cutting up. It was all too amusing. Papa, you can have my meat sweat. I mean, liquid leftover. I giggled. Well, isn't that nice of you? He said, ruffling my hair. No, I want you to enjoy. I'm getting that man's over there. The server jumped in for what I assume was the sake of their sanity. That won't be necessary. I'll bring you extra meat sweat. Port reduction. Well, I appreciate it. You're very kind. I'm still trying to decide, though. What about this? Papaw resumed his inquisition, slinging his pinky back to the menu with the strength of a magnet. Reflecting on that moment, I recalled various black and white photos arrayed all around the stone fireplace, snapshots from the old train depot. Then suddenly there they were, Papa and Mimo, in Lederhosen and Deerendel, a feathered cap and floral braids, posing on the platform of the Royal Alpine Express, his arm wrapped around her, smiling gaily as if they were pictured on a box of cocoa. I could practically hear the train's engine and whistle as steam began bellowing from the fireplace, engulfing our table and sending the other diners into a coughing conniption as the wall with the chimney slowly pulled away from the dining room, sliding into view an elongated accenting of mounted decor. funeral, I needed only a brief instance of the strange, unnerving silence that surrounded him then to realize this was not my papaw, 
not in the sense that I had come to rely on for so many years. Not this stranger the rest of them spoke of. His hardships with the company or his vivid imagination or his ability to befriend the most crooked of sorts was all too pedestrian for my papal. So with my few words, I said what needed to be said. I told them all of the diamond he rammed up his ass, B.B. Parsons and the green staining copper band, the jaunty draft dodgers in the Carolina bog, and the carcass-made bobsled in its record-setting run into Salzburg, the townspeople waiting with champagne and tinsel, Tommy's corpse encased in the ice block, posing for photos and receiving a victory kiss from a fur-lined Miss Salzburg. I told them about his years in Europe with Meemaw following the war, their scenic adventures riding the rails, and their hilltop homestead, the lonely stable hand Gunther, and the springtime scent that arrived each year with the snow melt. They sat on the edge of their pews as I presented the unrecounted time he brawled that beastly carny, the tilt-a-world cheat, I dubbed him. And when Papo held up that card game of villainous sorts who swindled him out of that week's liver allowance, Meemaw waiting out front with the car running and a stocking over her head. I brought joy to their grief-stunned faces with the tale of the jeweler from up north who wanted to buy the stone after another of Papal's infectious exhibitions at a downtown watering hole. There ain't enough tender on the planet to get me to part with my little gem, I said, he said. I'm afraid you'll just have to go out and find your own. as his pinky ring sparkled against the lively brilliance of his striking blue suit, something I've never told another soul until now. Hand to God, he was smiling. Production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg.